Hurry, spaces for Connect are going super fast. Click the Connect icon in your Pioneer X Pharmacy software so that you don't miss the premier pharmacy event of this summer. Your business depends on it. Click, pack, grab your boots. I'll see you in Nashville. We are on a mission. A mission to save and revitalize independent pharmacy. On the Catalyst Pharmacy Podcast, you'll get actionable business advice. Hear stories from industry leaders. And share a laugh or two with us. Fuel your passion for pharmacy. One conversation at a time. Four. Three. Two. One. Ignition. Welcome to the Catalyst Pharmacy Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Key, and today I'm here with my co-host, Marsha. Hey, I'm Marsha Bivens, Director of Marketing for Pioneer X. Our guest today is Camille Schreier. She is a P2 pharmacy student at Virginia Commonwealth University, and she is our former Miss America 2020. Camille, welcome. Nice. All right, so let's get it for, for our... Um, Viewers, listeners who don't know you, let's just give us a little overview tell us of about, your story. Yes, tell us about Camille. Oh, gosh. So I um, grew up outside of Newtown, Pennsylvania, which is a suburb of Philadelphia. I was always a huge tomboy. I loved being outside. I had a pond on my yard in my property where my parents um, live. And I used to go in and watch tadpoles turn into frogs and try to capture <sighs> them that. and make mud pies and garden and do all that stuff. And I was really interested in the outdoors so much when I was a young kid and I still am. But when I was young, I started to realize that a lot of what I liked in terms of the natural world around me was my love of science. And that really became a thread that uh, kind of wove through everything I did in the future of my life. And so I've always really been interested in STEM careers. I never really knew what I wanted to do with it because when we talk about you know STEM, that's so broad. Um, I tried engineering when I went to college and it didn't work out for me. And ultimately I ended up going to Virginia tech and majoring in biochemistry and systems biology and systems biology is basically like bioinformatics, a very kind of new field in science. Um, and I never thought I would go to graduate school. I actually always said I didn't want to go to graduate school. I wanted to graduate and just go out and get a job because I was so sick of being in school. But ultimately I ended up interning in a pharmaceutical company in college. I got a really cool opportunity to work more on the business side of pharmacy. And I worked under a pharmacist. And actually, I will say I had the naive perception that pharmacists only ever worked in retail pharmacies. I had no perception outside of that, that pharmacists could do anything else. And that opportunity gave me really an eye-opening experience into what a career in pharmacy might look like and gave me inspiration to want to get a graduate degree in something that I felt really connected with. I always loved medicine. My mom was a nurse growing up and I never saw myself in that direct, like touching patients type of uh, medicine where I would be a nurse or I would be a doctor. That wasn't something that was of interest, but I always loved the drugs. I'm like, how cool is it that we get to, you know, give people these medicines and it makes them feel better or changes their quality of life or saves their life. That's so cool. So pharmacy became the perfect way for me to do that. 
So I went to pharmacy school. Um, I'm at the Virginia Commonwealth University School of Pharmacy. I'm currently a P2, uh, and I'll be finishing my semester very soon and going into my hospital rotation. But uh, in the midst of all that, it was really interesting because I, in, in my P1 year, saw an advertisement on Facebook for a local competition that went to Miss Virginia. And I was like, how cool would that be to do on the weekend? Um, <laughs> Miss America was always something that I had watched. Get a dress. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I had watched Miss America for years. I knew about it. I competed in a couple pageants when I was a younger teen, um, but kind of stopped doing it when I went to college. And I felt like I had learned something from it. But I was like, I don't really see myself continuing this. But Miss America is this kind of like iconic thing in our culture and in our country mm-hmm. that I was like, how cool would it be to maybe do that? But like, I don't have, I don't sing or dance. What am I going to do on stage for my talent? So I signed up for this competition two weeks before it happened. And I was like, I'm going to do a science demonstration. Like I've always loved science. It's been part of my life forever. And it's something I'm really passionate about. And I think it could be a really cool way to, to show girls and, and young people, especially that, you know, you can do whatever you want. And it's really a message of like, just be you. It doesn't matter who you are. And, uh, I went and I won that local competition. I won Miss Virginia eight weeks later, and then I won Miss America six months later. So I took two years away from pharmacy school and uh, served as Miss Virginia and Miss America during a pandemic. And now I'm back and I'm just a pharmacy student again. But uh, I've had a lot of really incredible experiences through the pharmacy world, through being Miss America, and just really through my love of science. So you were the first person I've ever met or talked to that like, I thought I was the only one that geeked out and loved um, tadpoles and watching them change into frogs. Um, my grandparents had a lake house when I was growing up, and every time I'd find a tadpole, I was like, oh, this is so awesome. And I checked on it daily, yeah. and I was just, I, I loved it. It was so cute. So, tomboy, brothers? Yeah. I know I'm, I have an older sister, um, but I, I think that I'm the son that my dad never had. And I just was always, you know, I didn't care. I guess. I didn't know any different. I didn't know that, you know, girls did one thing or boys did another thing. And I just did what Mm -hmm. I liked. And I think that that has been a lot of the way that I've approached so many things because people will ask me all the time, like, you're a woman in a STEM field. Do you ever feel like you're treated differently or that you're, you know, approached differently in the field? And I think for me, I just don't even recognize the fact that I'm any different than anybody else that I work with. I just... Lots of women in pharmacy, for sure. Mm -hmm. And I think that so many women should... Um, and I've been really fortunate in my experience, even through doing, you know, scientific research and things that might be not as friendly to women in the science field. Sometimes I've had a really wonderful experience and kind of what you're saying in terms of like a lot of little girls are interested in, you know, the natural world around them. And I think that I get to do the really cool job of helping them recognize that that's science based because Mm -hmm. a lot of what I liked as a kid were things that all little kids like. But right. I had people around me that were like, hey, this is science. Like, if you like this, maybe you'll like biology or maybe you'll like chemistry and encourage that and helped me see the relevance in it. And so then when mm-hmm. I got into my education, I was like, "Ooh, cool. The biology that I'm learning has to do with those tadpoles that I like in my front yard. Or um, I'm able to see why chemistry is important to the, you know, the water or, or certain things. I thrive on relevance. I am inspired by relevance. And so that's really what drives me. And through my time as Miss America, especially, and as Miss Virginia, 
I got that cool experience to go in there with kids and show them the relevance and make things fun. So I would blow stuff up and then I would tell them about the reaction and I would help them see why the chemistry or whatever topics they're learning matter. Mm -hmm. And those can be really hard topics for kids to learn. I struggled in a lot of my classes. I'm still not an A student, but recognizing that if you just get that information as much as you can and apply it the best that you can, that really mm -hmm. the experience and the passion for the subject is really the most important rather than getting an A in every single class. That was a barrier that I always faced because I have always been kind of a perfectionist. I always want to do things to the best of what I think that I'm capable of. And mm -hmm. that sometimes would be discouraging if I were in those science courses or, you know, pre-pharmacy courses and feeling like I'm not performing as well as I should. And uh, reminding myself that ultimately that's not the most important thing. It's really my passion and what I think that I can do with it. So what was the, what was the science demonstration? Okay. So I did, um, it's called elephant's toothpaste. Okay. It is officially the catalytic decomposition of hydrogen peroxide. And it's really interesting because I have 90 seconds to do a demonstration on stage at any level in the Miss America competition. And I had to come up with something that was going to be exciting and really visual and entertaining within those 90 seconds, because, you know, it is a talent and you're going to be judged off the entertainment value of it right. just as much yep. as you right. are, like whatever your skill set is. And it's so funny because people are like, you know, it's a really simple demonstration. I get those people that will, you know, criticize and say, you know, it's really pretty basic. Um, and I'm like, what do you want me to do? Run a PCR gel up on stage? No one will see it. No one will know what's going on. It's right. so slow. So I picked it because of how exciting it is. And it was very interesting because I had to purchase like 35% hydrogen peroxide. And for anyone who's not a pharmacy person, you know that like the one that you buy in the store and that like brown bottle is like 3%. So it was about right. 10, 12 times stronger than that. Uh, it was kind of corrosive. So I did burn myself with it a couple times and I had to make my catalyst. So the catalyst that I use in the reaction is potassium iodide, but it has to be a super saturated solution. So I ended up making a super saturated solution on my stove and um, bottling it and bringing it with me because I couldn't commercially purchase it. It's actually a prescription product. <laughs> and uh, so I basically like compounded it in my house and brought it with me. And, um, it was a really cool thing for me to be able to go through and think of the logistics of this entire demonstration. And then really the showmanship of science was kind of where I wanted to highlight it as well. And when I do the demonstration, I'm talking through the actual reaction that's happening. And it's really more of like a monologue meets science meets like Bill Nye or something of like the, you know, the excitement value of what that is. And the demonstration that I do specifically, I got it to shoot like 17 or 18 feet in the air. So it like rises far above me. It is hot. Like you cannot touch it because it's exothermic. Um, so the cleanup was another kind of barrier in how we were going to do that safely. But it was just incredible when you look back and you see those photos and you watch, you know, you're at the Miss America stage and you see this like plume of foam coming down. And it, it seems kind of like backwards to a lot of people because they're like, what is this? Mm -hmm. Like, this isn't Miss America. <laughs> right. But it's kind of like a statement at the same time of like being authentic to who I was. I'm like, yep. let me see if I can win with this. Right. Like you ha people have a perception of who Miss America is. And it's very often I inaccurate <laughs> to what the reality of 
me or any other Miss America is. Um, and you think about like, what do little girls want to be now? Um, we see so many women taking amazing careers in STEM and taking careers that are so different than, you know, women 30, 50 years ago are taking on. And to be able to show them that, hey, you can be this really iconic feminine figure in our country being Miss America, and you can also be a really cool scientist at the same time or whatever you want to be. And that was really mm -hmm. important for me to show and feel like I could just go out and be myself. And if I didn't win at the end of the day, if I came in last place, that I was going to be really happy with how I competed in the experience that I had. And ultimately, I think that doing something so different than everyone else, because the talent at Miss America tends to be very um, streamlined with like singers, dancers, instrumentalists, right. a couple baton twirlers. We get well, you've seen a mime. You yeah. had some kind of sliding. Yeah, I, I I understand what you're saying when you say it's very cliche to the yeah. dance, sing, twirl a baton, and I love the woman empowerment that you brought to it that, you know, we don't have to be pretty and stand here and sing. We can actually, yeah. we have brains and we can use them. And I yeah. love that. About Did they you. play She Blinded Me with Science in the background? No, he that was. Do so you know funny. that song? See, they, I, I, I said this morning, they were like, I don't know that song. I do. Like, and the, the, she they blinded really, me with I think science. the really interesting thing for me too is Great. that like, I never thought I could be Miss America because I didn't sing or dance or play an instrument which is so silly because the whole program is based around scholarship. So I yep. won like $80,000 of scholarship money to go wow. toward my higher education. And I felt like I couldn't access that because I didn't have a fine arts or performing talent, which is kind of silly. So I also just wanted to be like, hey, any girl who feels like they have um, a talent in some way, if you can figure out a way to creatively uh, perform that in that talent portion of the competition. I want you to feel included in this because it's such an incredible opportunity. I think that you, you, you made sense though there, and it wasn't just doing a science experiment. Yeah. The, the talent was in the choosing an experiment that was entertaining. Yeah. Pulling it off in an entertaining way. The, the spokesperson, the, in the, in the time limitation, the, that the you talent, had to. the time, yeah. you know, you chose a really, you know, it wasn't like I'm inventing rocket fuel or I'm inventing, you know, nuclear uh, mm -hmm. fusion. Yeah. It, you know, you, it was, it was, um, so I think it was super, super smart. Thank you. On, I like to say that part. communication is really the talent there. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And that's ultimately what I did in my job every day was communicating with people at every single level from like the one-on-one -on -one with people that I've never met or being in front of a group of 500 people. That was what I did. And, uh, it's been a really cool thing to be able to say that I did. And honestly, when I would go out with my crown on and people would be like, are you the science girl? I was like, I have done my job. <laughs> I have done my job. That was the, just the most wonderful piece of the experience. So, yeah. So you, you said you referenced Beak, um, Bill Nye, the science guy. I grew up on a uh, Beaker's world. Okay. I love that. That, was, that one was before Bill Nye. I was going to say, that's and a little bit before me, but we used yes. to have Bill Nye um, come in on our TVs in school. And then the other cool thing is I've gotten to work with Steve Spangler now, who's the, or was the resident science guy for Ellen. And he's been on Ellen oh, like yeah. 20 or 30 times. Oh, wow. And I actually got to go out to Colorado and film with him specifically. And he just embodies every piece of science entertainment. And he was someone I looked up to a lot when I was 
coming through this whole process and figuring out how I was going to do the showmanship of science. And so then we did an episode of uh, his show called DIY Sci together out in Colorado. And it's just so cool to be able to do that with someone who you had looked up to as well. Yeah, I know the science entertainment is great. They get to blow stuff up and shit. Pretty cool. Yeah, I like the uh, where they debunk the. I don't know. There's there's some like MythBusters. I, I just got a weird yeah the, yeah, myth the MythBusters. Busters, yeah. Yep. Yeah, and now I come back to pharmacy school, right? And it's like not really tasteful to try to blow stuff up in your pharmacy lab. So <laughs> really, okay, yeah. <laughs> I yeah. have to like kind of uh, regulate Bring that a little bit. So I'm like, yeah. okay, I'll blow the stuff up when I'm like doing that kind of stuff. But now I'm of course, so focused on like safety and, and accuracy when I'm doing things versus like just pouring things in and seeing what, what sticks, um, which is just kind of the difference. But frankly, it's interesting because my whole experience through this, I talked about like science has always been such a huge part of me, but I, through my time as Miss America, did a lot of work in pharmacy and we each have our own social initiative that we work on. And mine is called Mind Your Meds. And I focus on right. drug okay. safety and abuse prevention from pediatrics to geriatrics. So okay. when I was trying to figure out what I was going to advocate for, I was like, is it is it science? Is it STEM education? Is it women in science? And I'm like, no, I'm kind of already doing that with this whole talent piece of what I do. I want to focus on something really specific that I think affects absolutely everyone. And I kind of was thinking about, okay, you know, as pharmacists, we're people who are charged to help our patients do things in a safe way, take their medications in a way that keeps them safe, understand what they're taking, understand their indications, what their side effects and safety, you know, profile of their medication are, and even with over-the-counters. And I wanted to kind of talk about, okay, patient safety, but then I I got into a Narcan training class at my university. and. I didn't really even know what Narcan was. And that's kind of silly for me to even say now, but I think it's representative of a lot of us in the world who are very blind to the opioid epidemic. And Mm -hmm. I took that class. I learned about opioids and opioid overdoses that I didn't really know much about before. And I think the magnitude of the issue I started to understand through that course. And we all left with our own Narcan and I carry it with me and I, I learned how to be a trainer to admin, ha- help other people learn how to administer Narcan properly um, and how to recognize the signs of opioid overdoses. And so I'm thinking about this advocacy. I'm thinking about patient safety, but I'm like, I have to bring this piece with the opioid epidemic and substance use disorders into this because as pharmacists, we're potentially handing that Oxycontin or something over the counter to somebody who could potentially have um an issue with that substance long-term? Do they understand the risks of these medications? Are they informed? Do they have people in their life who could potentially um, misuse those? Are they storing them properly? How can we positively impact this issue that's really widespread throughout all of our communities across this entire country? So I would say that half of my, most of my time, more than half of my time had been dedicated to uh, substance use disorders and overcoming stigma and letting people understand, understanding what Narcan is, helping people access that and and doing harm reduction. That has been something that I never imagined that I would be an advocate for because I have not had anyone in my life that has struggled with substance use disorders. Mm-hmm. But when I realized how much of an issue it was, it made me want to do something about it. And the stigma is still so pronounced and it really it's sad to see, but I think that, you know, as a future pharmacist and as a pharmacy student right now, there's so much that I can do 
and using the platform that I had and continue to have, um, that's something I definitely wanted to focus on a lot. Have you watched the, uh, yeah, I, the opioid thing is, is massive and it's continued to blow up in the last five years and yes. really put it public at how much of a crisis this is. Have you watched the Netflix series that went over that and oh. actually interviewed one of our pharmacists? So Dan Schneider is a yep. good friend of mine. <laughs> yep. We have worked together very closely. And so the pharmacist on Netflix, that docuseries came out kind of in the beginning of 2020, which was just after I won. And yep. uh, ironically, Dan and I have the same lawyer. <laughs> and so our lawyer was <laughs> like, do you all know each other? Because if you don't, then you should. Oh, wow. And, um, we connected. And so I actually got to go down to Louisiana, to New Orleans, where Dan is from. I saw the pharmacy. I got to see where that whole story took place. And it's really interesting because Dan has really been on the front line of seeing that epidemic from a pharmacist perspective. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really interesting because when I started pharmacy school, I remember asking a question to someone and saying like, if I don't think this prescription is right. Like, do I have an obligation to fill it? Because I'm like, right. wh where does that ethic part of, where does that come in? Or are you just, is your job really just to, to fill this and get it through the counter and make sure that everything is correct and what the prescription says? And I recognized at that point that as a pharmacist, I have the opportunity to say, I don't think this is correct and I'm not going to fill yep. this for you. And that is exactly what Dan did. And I think that as a industry, I really think that, that that's a hard decision to make because it does become like, okay, are your supervisors going to support that? Like, where does your own personal ethics come into that whole piece? But what mm -hmm. he did, yeah. I admire so much to say like, this is a problem for my patients. I recognize this particular provider that seems to be an issue. And I'm going to go back like all the way through these steps and I'm going to help our community solve this problem. Right. And but the I harder really piece of that, that is that is that, you know, you're a, you're a huge advocate against the opi opioid crisis and you're doing your part to yeah. save that patient that's in front of you. Yes. But at the same time, there's only so much, so much you can do because that patient's going to get frustrated. Yep. They're going to take it to another pharmacy that will fill it for them. Yeah, and I, and I, then there's the, and, and the, the really part that, uh, well, God, what was that HBO show with Michael Keaton that really was it dope talked sick? to, yes, yes. That one, I, every episode just made me just nauseous. Yeah. And that's at you, you how wonder, they do you, started that. Do you think any pharmacists actually feel like it's their responsibility to fill it anyway? Or do you think they hide behind that? Um, I think that a lot of, a lot of pharmacists might feel kind of complacent in the fact that they're just going to fill it because it's maybe not necessarily their responsibility to navigate that situation with a patient. And frankly, how do you really know if it's appropriate or not? If you're just in a community setting and you don't see what that indication is, do you really know the patient? Do you have 400, 500 scripts coming through a day? And I yeah. recognize that that can be a huge barrier. So I, I don't mean to criticize pharmacists in general for just passing that prescription through at all because you don't always have all the information. And Dan particularly was in an independent pharmacy that was much smaller, so he could recognize mm -hmm. those things much quicker. But I think for me, even independent of the not filling a prescription like that, taking the charge to educate that patient when you do see that prescription come through, 
Do you know how to dispose of this medication if you have extra? That's something that's really important to me. I've worked with the DEA in National Drug Take Back Days for the past two years and helping people understand how to safely dispose of the medication and get rid of it and advocating for getting rid of the extras because that tends to be a huge issue in terms of getting these medications into our communities when people have all this extra and then they're like, oh, where did all the extras go? Hmm. Or they're like, oh, I've got Mm -hmm. some of this. Let me give it to you. And the danger that comes along with that um, in terms of just safely storing medications so that people can't access them, that people can't accident, your children can't accidentally take them. Um, And so there's other things that we can do even outside of, you know, intervening and saying, I'm not going to fill this. But there's so much education that we can provide people to make sure that they understand um, if that prescription maybe comes through with a naloxone prescription saying, do you have a family member in your household that knows how to administer this? People think that you administer Narcan or Naloxone to yourself. And that is something that I think is really interesting. I never even Mm -hmm. considered that. But people are like, oh, if I'm overdosing, I I give myself this spray in my nose. No, not at all. Um, And people, if they get this prescription for Naloxone and they don't know that someone else is supposed to use it, it's not going to help them. Right. So making sure that they fully understand what they can do with the, with the tools that they have in front of them. And, you know, opioids are appropriate in a lot of situations. I'm not saying that they're not, but I mean, do people recognize the risks of them when they're prescribed them? Are they really given all the information? Do they, I'm all about empowering people with knowledge. I'm not here to tell you what to do. I'm here to give you the information about the risks and benefits and allow you to make your decision as a patient. If your prescriber gave you this prescription for X, Y, or Z, I want you to understand what the risks and benefits of this are and what potentially you can do to keep yourself and the people around you safe. I feel like that's my job. And additionally, one of the things I've become really passionate about is helping people that are outside of the science community and the pharmacy community understand the physiology of addiction and how this is not a choice for people. I see that constantly, that people still feel that those who go through addiction are making a decision every single day to wake up and use a substance when ultimately it is a physiological process within the brain that keeps them from being able to make a different choice. And when you take that you know, that choice piece away, you can take that stigma away because you're saying, okay, this person isn't choosing to do this. Maybe they're making that action every day, but they are not necessarily waking up excited to do this every single day. And we need to help them break that cycle. And understanding that has really helped me become a better advocate for patients. Um, And that's not just with, you know, opioids. There's plenty of other medications we see drug tolerance with all the time. Um, but we have this stigma that comes with it when it comes to things like opioids and other substances. So I could talk about it all day long, but it's something that I'm really passionate about and something that I have have advocated for throughout my time as Miss America, but absolutely plan to continue and have been continuing post yeah, my so crown. So that's a great, great question. What are you going to do with your, uh, with your pharmacy degree? What, what kind of Where do you want to work? Yeah. So I, because of the experience I had in the pharmaceutical industry prior to ever entering pharmacy school, I would like to work in the pharmaceutical industry still. That was what led me to want to go to pharmacy school because I wanted to see myself in that position. And 
frankly, I haven't had a lot of other pharmacy experiences because I had never worked in a pharmacy. I'd never been in a hospital environment. So that decision could change as I continue to go through my education right. and get more experiences. But especially now through, you know, doing all this advocacy, being a positive and ethical light within a pharmaceutical company and bringing science and bringing patient advocacy within pharmaceutical, the pharmaceutical industry in general, I think is a place that I could really make an impact. And, you know, a lot of pharmaceutical companies get a bad reputation because of things like Purdue, um, which of course really tainted a lot of it. But you think of like all of the other wonderful things and medications that we do get from pharmaceutical companies. Um, of course, not everything is always the most ethical, but nothing is perfect. And can we, can I be that person that can come in and help kind of be a voice of reason? Yeah. So, so what, you know, you think about chemists at, at pharmaceutical companies and, and used to all the drug reps were pharmacists and they, they moved away from that. Um, what, do, what do pharmacists at a drug company do today? Many things. Um, I have seen a lot of pharmacists who work in kind of the medical or regulatory process. Um, okay. When we look at drug approvals, submitting things to the FDA, being in the research part of pharmacy, um, you could be working in a lab. But for me, I see myself more in like the business development side and helping to use my knowledge of the medicines and kind of being a medication expert. But the communication and, and, and the, that type of patient advocacy skills that I've gotten um, to potentially figure out how that pharmaceutical company can make different or better decisions or where they're going to spend their time or money in the future. Um, I, I don't know. We're going to see where I end up. But So is that a product manager or kind of a brand oh manager? I have no – I mean, I, I a, pharmacist, a pharmacist could do either of those jobs in my opinion. Um, but I don't know where my skills and talents are going to end up in there. Uh, we're going to have to see. And uh, I'm just – at this point, since I've gotten the experience and the education, I'm just going to kind of see where – where God leads me yep. <laughs> at this point. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting because, you know, we work with some of those at the pharmaceutical companies because they'll work on adherence programs with yeah. different products, um, different methods. Um, there seems to be a little bit of a turnover in that role because yeah. a lot of times we're dealing with, okay, now this is the new person in that role. And hopefully that means they're moving up in the company. So maybe yeah. that's a good upward momentum rather than moving between, but um, where they'll have a, a product and, and their goal is to figure out what's the, What's the plan, the yeah. advertising and, and where it That's goes and, and, and that how a, you handle adherence? And that was a lot of what I did in my internship, um, but we did it more on the generic side, which was really interesting um, okay. to try to figure out how you were going to like market and, and do all this stuff with a generic medication. So that was a little bit more of a challenge compared to a branded product, um, right. but kind of continuing the lifespan was something which was really interesting. Uh, the other really cool things that I think pharmacists do within pharmaceutical companies, uh, medical science liaisons are awesome. I mean, you literally are a pharmacist within a pharmaceutical company that is providing scientific information to people in the community. It's not sales. Um, okay. It's solely talking about the science behind a lot of either the products or the disease states that that company is working on um, and going out and interacting with people in the community. So I, as a pharmacy student, have attended lectures from medical science liaisons who come in and lecture on different things. But they are people with either MDs or PharmDs who have that medical background and just provide information. And a lot of what I've done in the last couple years has been being a science educator. And I love that piece of it and translating this high level, sometimes unattainable scientific research information that a lot of people can't always digest and being the person to digest that and provide that, that information to people around me. That's been so it's really kind cool. of a, a replacement of the sales role. 
in a way, yeah, kind of the that where would, I, we bring a bunch of people cells. in for dinner and then tell them about the product. Is that? Mm-hmm. I wouldn't so that say would it's more a of an industry education. I mean, there's still plenty of pharmaceutical sales representatives that exist. There's just many laws that pro- prohibit them from um, yep. spending money in certain ways, but they still very much exist and you know move the products along in in a lot of doctors' offices. But that medical science liaison is, I think, a very different role. Um, yeah. But it's it's more of an educational role on the disease states. I don't know. It's hard to describe because I haven't been in it, but um, it's a, it's a place that I see pharmacists land a lot. I will say that. And peers that I have seen gone through kind of the PharmD process and then want to go into industry. A lot of them have ended up in those roles, which is pretty cool. Yeah. There's an interesting product called uh, Medwise and, and the guy who talks about that product talks about how little um, drug education doctors get in, in college. Right there, there are most educations physiology and disease, but not really in the drugs associated with that. And and most of them, uh, he went on to say, get all of their information about the drugs from the drug reps mm-hmm. that come out. And and sometimes that is and very it's the exact same education that the patients get. But on it's that narrow medication. because yeah. Oh, yeah. a lot of drug issues are are the way the drugs react with each other. Yeah, and um, you know things that. Hey, I can take both of these, but I probably shouldn't take them both at the same time, and and this kind of things that doctors just don't just yeah. don't get. Even just in the last, you know, two semesters of my pharmacy education, I think I've learned um, a huge amount of just the science behind medicines and how they do interact with each other, and yep. and the physiology behind, you know metabolism and distribution and elimination and all these different things that we consider as pharmacists and, and dosing and and different considerations for different patients that I can't imagine, you know, doctors can't necessarily fit that in their medical education. And I always like to say, like, I feel like doctors are the diagnostic experts. They're really good at that, figuring out what, what's going on with the patient. But as pharmacists, we can help be that therapy expert and saying, okay, for this person, you figured out that this patient has this particular disease state. Now we're going to look at all the different considerations for that patient and figure out what the best treatment protocol for that patient might be. And there, I mean, there's so many drugs coming out all the time. Mm-hmm. Right. It's hard for everybody to keep up with them, but to have that drug expert on your team can be a huge asset. Um, and I think that that's where pharmacists have really come into play, especially in the hospital environment. And I didn't even understand any of that before I went to pharmacy school. And I don't think a lot of people do. <laughs> you know, my wife's an occupational therapist, right? And the doctor will say what's wrong, but he doesn't come in and tell her every day what modalities, do you, you know, what things to do. He's not telling, they're not, doctor's treat, not saying to, how to treat that right, patient. Right, he's not That's saying totally how to, to treat it. He's saying, hey, this patient needs OT, or yeah. this patient needs PT, um, but then that person is deciding that course of treatment. Yeah. So, so in that model, you're thinking the same way. Doctor says, this is the problem, right? Pharmacist, how are we going to treat it? Yeah. Right. What, what is the drug side of, of the treatment? Um, and you see that become more and more likely as, you know, we continue to elevate, you know, pharmacy, uh, pharma, uh, being a pharmacist becomes, has become a doctor, yeah. you know, and, and it gets so much education, uh, around that. So, yeah. And the only piece is just one, you talk about education, education, education. I don't feel like there's enough patient education out there. Mm-hmm. And that's why they get into these opioids because they just, the doctor told them to. 
Yeah. And right. a pharmacist filled it. it. Yeah. And the other thing that kind of I recently got enlightened to was uh, pharmacogenomics testing is, you know, how does your body metabolize things? And so I did the test and I found out that a medication that was prescribed to me, which I thought, okay, you know, I take it, I feel good for about an hour and then the problem it's supposed to be solving is still happening throughout the day. And when I got the test back, it said I was a rapid metabolizer of that specific drug. Yeah. And I'm like, well, that's not going to work. Right. And well, you so, can take less of it more often, right? It, or it you was just, just change your one dose pill or, a day. Yeah. It's so, so I, if, if I, I have to overdose on that, that creates more problems. I think it's so important that you mentioned that. And pharmacogenomics has been something I've been really interested in. I love genetics in general. And mm-hmm. there's that type of consideration is important in almost every single body system, uh, every right. single disease state when you're thinking of how is this patient going to react to this medication? And it often becomes like a trial and error kind of situation of like, okay, we've got, you know, 10 different options for you for whatever you're treating. And we're going to try the first one, see if it works for you. And that becomes a really long process. It can delay that patient, you know, resolving whatever issue they're there Mm -hmm. for. Um, and it's, it's, we've come so far to have the technology to do it. And it's funny because I actually now am working with a pharmacogenomics company called ID Genetics. Okay. And I took a test as well. They specialize in really testing for pain medications and for um, depression, anxiety medications like SSRIs. Yeah. Yeah. And Those are- it helps patients be able to have that clarity when they take that test and their provider can kind of have a better idea of what they can prescribe or maybe change the way that they're prescribing it. It's a huge tool that I hope becomes a standard in a lot of places of care, um, especially in the mental health space, which when someone's coming in and struggling with something like depression to be able to have a streamlined treatment protocol for them. Well, so the interesting is that, you know, all in the last two, three, five years, these DNA tests, these at-home DNA tests have come out, Ancestry.com, 23andMe, and now they're even elevating it and going, hey, so we're able to study and learn more, and these are the things we've learned. And 23andMe recently started adding in you know, medication, metabolize, your metabolize, how you metabolize certain medications. Yeah. And if, if, if pharmacies could get paired up Or if, I mean, just like when I sign into MD box and I do the visit and they say, where can we send your information? What pharmacy? Same thing. If I could tell 23andMe what pharmacy I want to send this type of health data to, and we had a way to process it. So that way that pharmacist knew I was a rapid metabolizer of that drug. They wouldn't give it to me. They'd call a doctor and say, Hey, she's not, this isn't going to work. Yeah. Still That's the, a whole nother level that we just one, one of your big climbing. barriers to that taking off is just the payment model. Oh, yeah. Most third parties won't pay for it today. And so your only people getting that are people who are paying for it themselves. Well, they're, um, they're paying for it and get they, they've already paid for it because they want to know, hey, where is my where's my origin? Am I I'm mostly from Europe or I'm mostly for here. Oh, cool. I get to learn about yeah. how my body metabolizes drugs. How, why is this important? Yeah. And there's that piece of patient education that's still missing on the importance on the things that you put in your body, what it does to you. Yeah, I agree. And it's interesting. You talk about the payment model. I feel like I wish I could go to, to insurance companies and tell them like, hey, if you do this pharmacogenomics testing, you're, I'm sure the cost savings for a lot of people are mm-hmm. there. 
because of yeah. how many visits and how many trials and how many errors do these patients go through. Um, because I feel like it would be such a benefit in so many situations. Um, but of course, I can't be the one to kind of wave the magic wand over the insurance company because, of course, they, they t- they're they not expensive, a lot of these tests anymore, but they still are relatively pricey. I mean, the, right. a couple hundred dollars, right. I'm sure. Well, and what happens, and, and here's what, what's wrong with our country, and it's free enterprise is right and it's wrong, but the problem is is that there's always some guy out there trying to beat the system, mm-hmm. right? So the payer pays for it, and all of a sudden you have the guy who's – who sets up shop on the block and is calling Medicare patients and signing them up for these tests. And so they can do thousands and thousands and thousands of tests that people don't really, you know, some of that depends on what drug you're on. You know, it really ought to be keyed on, Hey, I'm, I'm going to go on uh, this type of drug and Hey, that's one of those that matters based on your, your genetics. Let's schedule you a test. Then we have it forever Mm -hmm. kind of thing. So it's interesting. You you can kind of see it on, on both sides sometimes, but it's definitely a thing. And we keep hearing lots about it. Uh, uh, over the last few years and lots of companies have tried and, Hey, we can't get a payment model. Um, are they trying to get too aggressive? Are they trying to figure out how they make money long-term? Mm-hmm. Cause it's just test. You sell somebody a test. You know, I can imagine we're on, you know, shark tank and, and they're like, yeah, but Hey, once everybody, once people buy one, it's, they've got it forever. Yeah. You know, what's your long-term business model? And, yeah. and they, they try to do things like, well, you're going to take the test and I'm going to hold the data and you're going to pay a monthly fee and, yeah. and this kind of stuff. So it's interesting how that it's a really cool marketplace, but it's interesting how it's going to take off. And imagine that's as, as, as technology advances and the cost drives down, it's going to get small enough to cost. It doesn't matter. Right. Yeah. You know, your, your pharmacist maybe to do it in a chip for 10 yeah. bucks there in the pharmacy with point of care testing. Yeah, that would be awesome. I, I hope that we get to that point. And I think that we absolutely could. I mean, you see how far genetics have, have come in the last 20 years. And uh, maybe in 20 years, we'll be doing the same thing. So I, I'm, I'm looking forward to that because I think that it would be great information for providers and for pharmacists to have as well. Yeah, that would be amazing. I mean, just like that company that we saw that they could do testing right there in the pharmacy for your A1C and that and yeah. everything else. And it was just a tiny device. And it was just like, let me prick your finger. We're going to find some things out. Just uh, imagine if we move a little further, then there's now a device that like companies like 23andMe or the other pharmagenomics that you're working with, they actually sell a device to the pharmacy and you just say, tell the patient, spit in this tube. Yeah. And then I'm going to put it in this machine and it's going to tell me all about you. And it's just how much longer until we're there. Uh-huh. Yep. So how did the, how did the pandemic affect the whole, um, Miss America thing? Oh gosh. Um, it, completely changed everything. <laughs> okay. I, so no minor re- effect, just a little bit of minor stuff, you know, nothing serious. Um, for reference, Miss America normally would travel like 20,000 miles a month and I would have wow. been changing hotels. I was for the first three months, every day or two days, changing cities every day or 24 hours. I like barely came home in the first three months that I was Miss America. And that would have been my entire experience. And I remember I was in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and it was like the second week of March in 2020. And they're like, there's this virus. And I'm like, okay, cool. They're like, bring hand sanitizer with you. (laughs) And um, I got on the plane and the plane was like empty coming home. And I want to say that was March 13th, which was kind of the day the world shut down. Yeah. And I landed and they wiped my schedule for two weeks because everything else was, I mean, people were canceling what we were doing. Right. And they were like, it was two weeks to stop the spread. And then two weeks became four, which became like four months. And I did not leave my house from March to July. Wow. 
And that was completely different than any other Miss America had ever done and very different from what I had expected. I will say in a certain level, I was thrilled by that because I have a genetic connective tissue disorder that causes me to have chronic fatigue. <laughs> and I was completely wiped out after oh, three those months. three months. Yeah. I was like, I don't know how I'm going to sustain this because huh. I just, my body can't keep up with it. But ultimately I didn't really have a choice. I just kind of had to keep going and to, to go home was wonderful now, I had to then quickly shift on how I was doing my job to be more of a virtual platform, which took, I would say, maybe a month or two for everybody to be like, how are we going to mm -hmm. figure this out? I was like, I don't know how to work Zoom. I quickly did. Um, I ended up creating a whole video studio in my basement where I was shooting content all the time. So I was making science videos. I uh, did some stuff with 3M, which was really cool. So they, they transitioned and did this whole like science at home series, which was great because kids weren't in school. And so they needed yep. extra science enrichment content that they weren't necessarily getting in their classroom. Oh, I, wow. I literally wrote and shot an entire television series for PBS here in central Virginia from my house, from my kitchen. It's called, huh. it was called Cooking Up Science with Miss America. It still lives on the internet. You can look it up. And it was like a 10 part mini series where I, I mean, I shot all this stuff. I did all the demos. I did all this stuff that people could do at home in their kitchen that okay. was science related because I'm like, people aren't going to be able to go out and get a bunch of supplies right now. They're at right. home. So let's yeah. do stuff with things that you already have. And it became such a cool opportunity for me to do things. I always do things differently, right? That's been my whole brand from the beginning. And I'm like, this is very much who I am. So to transition into a very different platform was actually really cool. And a lot of that stuff lives on now after my time is now over versus a lot of the stuff that I would have done in person. You know, it's it happens yeah, yeah. that day and then yeah. it's gone. Uh, All this stuff lives on and is recorded. And it was just, a, it was difficult, of course, to transition and and see what the world was going through. But in the same way, it, it was almost a perfect way for me as a person to execute the job. And, and didn't you do it? Did you do it for two years? Is that? Technically, I, I held the title for two years, but I'll say in that second year, I was much more of a hybrid Miss America because okay. I needed to go back to school. So I did a couple things in 2021. I got to go on like a USO tour. Uh, I, I got to serve at some really cool events. Um, but 2020 was my full-time year as Miss America and I was Miss America 2020. And then just 2021 became, okay, we're going to move the competition to the end of 2021. And, right. uh, so I held, held the title through that, but ultimately my life became a little bit more, you know, went back to being normal a little bit more as I returned to student life. But uh, I I did crown Miss America 2022 just this past December. And uh, it was a two and a half year process if you include my time as Miss wow. Virginia, right. which was a marathon and it should have never been that long. Uh, it was really incredible to think about that much. So that'll be one life. of those trivia questions that yeah, there'll be a trivial say, pursuits that, here in four that, or five years. Who was the only Miss America to, yeah. to serve for two say, years? Does, that, does uh, that qual does that serving those two years, does that make you the longest running Miss America? I don't know for sure. Technically in like nineteen twenty two and twenty three, the same woman won twice. Oh. Okay. And so she was Miss America in both of those years. And huh. so 
I'm not totally sure back in the history, so I'm hesitant to say that I am for sure the longest <laughs> right. yeah. um, because I, I haven't really done my digging to check. But I, right. in the most you know recent past, absolutely, I couldn't tell you that this has happened in the last, gosh, 20 or 30 years that I know of. But back before then, I haven't done enough digging to tell you for sure. Right. They had Miss America in 1920. How crazy well, is that? It, so this was, it's, okay, so here's the other the, the other piece of this. It just celebrated 100 years. Exactly. So 2021 was supposed to be the 100th anniversary celebration because uh, it was it began yeah. in 1921. So to cancel the competition and not crown yeah, Miss America years, 2021, yeah. which would have happened in December of 2020, was really a big deal. Mm-hmm. And... Um, we did then have our hundredth anniversary this December, but it was kind of a year late. It, it was really, uh, it was sad because, you know, I was so excited to be able to be the one to crown that person. And and ultimately Mm -hmm. she did get a wonderful experience and we have, you know, the crown is gold this year to commemorate the hundred years. And it's, it's been cool to see. And then also I'll say, you know, you get to be part of this like club of Miss America's. Yeah. Miss America 1948 was there this year. I mean, there's so many Miss Americas that are, you know, you look back and you're like, oh my gosh, this woman was Miss America, like far beyond, like before my own parents were born and listen to them and hear the stories and understand how their experience was different than mine. And it's all, it's hard to relate the job to anything else because it's a job that everyone knows, but no one ever really fully gets to know that girl because that girl is only there for a year. Right. But every single woman that's done the job has done it differently and had their own experiences. And yeah, so then your you, experience yes. would technically, and correct me if I'm wrong, but from my understanding, your experience is technically or would be technically the first one that is documented on social media and done via social media. Yeah, because the ones that because I mean, as they as they do their visitations in person, it's not publicized on social media. Right. The stuff recorded. Yeah, it's not recorded. It's not put out there. It's I would say that, you know, in the last probably five to 10 years, a lot of the stuff that we do is based around social media just because that's where the world is going. But mine was definitely the first one to be virtual. I'll say that that was the big differentiator in terms of my experience where I don't think that really in the past anyone like Miss America zoomed into something or, you know, met with a group completely virtually. And a lot of the content that I created was very different. But I will say that social media was a huge part throughout that throughout, you know, the last, I would say, five to 10 years. That's probably a good estimate. So you go every year to the Miss America pageant and sit with the former... If I can. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I mean, is that is that how you'll see, you know, you say that Miss 1948 was there. I mean, do y'all ever get together? Do you ever have a once a year, the former Miss Americas get together and talk you know, stuff? Or? I think they do, but I'm so new to the club that I haven't done it yet. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I do see the women have relationships with each other for many years to come. And uh, I think there's some retreats that they've had in the past. But, of course, you know, I, I became this forever Miss America through COVID. And so a lot of us haven't been able to do that yet, but it's been a pleasure to be able to, to see the experiences that they have had. It is really a club and a lot of them do come back every single year and, and watch the competition. Um, I would say there's probably 20 or 25 of the living Miss Americas that were there this year. I'm not sure oh, how wow. many are still living, but does, many more than the, that. Does the current Miss America call you and say, 
hey, this is going on. What do you think? You know, sometimes I definitely have told her, I'm like, I'll be there for you as much or as little as you want me to be, because I don't want her to feel like she has to have her experience be exactly like mine, but to know that I'm there if she wants to bounce ideas off of or work through problems and I'm there for her. Um, and her and I have started to get, you know, get to know each other a little bit more. Um, she was from Alaska, so I had not met her until the competition and didn't get a lot of time to be able to spend with the girls, but I'm starting to get to know her more and she knows that I'm there if she needs me. Yeah. Is she doing some virtual stuff as well? Yes. So it's interesting because as they started her experience, I think that they were like, okay, cool. You're going to do virtual stuff and you're going to do in-person stuff. And when we had the competition was when Omicron kind of started to become more of a thing. And so her first couple weeks, I think in month, uh, was, I saw her do a lot virtually and I'm starting to see her go out and do more stuff in person as well. But I think that what I did in terms of the virtual is going to end up setting a tone for many years in the future that we don't always have to fly you somewhere. You right, can, it can be branded. You can zoom in, you can do it virtually. So, I was about to yep. say, that probably set a huge tone. And yeah. not to mention that they're probably going to be able to stack more engagements on top <laughs> of that. Yeah, okay. Since we don't have to pay for your flight. <laughs> you can do two a day. And, yeah. Yeah. You, can, you can do two, three a day. So and just hop off this, hop on the next Still one. might not be as exhausting. It's yeah. not. And that's what I was going to say. It actually, that's, I think, a wonderful change because you're able to have more of a quality of life when you're, yep. you know, mm-hmm. j- jumping on a call that's in, you know, Virginia and then Arizona and then California. And then you shut your computer and you go walk your dog. Like yep. you have a little bit more of a normal life rather than constantly being on the road. I'm a homebody, so like traveling is fun, but I don't necessarily want to do it constantly. And I think a lot of girls have gotten really worn out emotionally and mentally and physically throughout that time where do they really have to be or can we do a lot of things virtually now that we have the technology? Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, it was fun. Thank you, guys. I'm glad I'm not too brain dead. I I took a pharmacokinetics test yesterday and it just about ripped all my brain cells out of my head. Oh, no. <laughs> no. Well, are you done with your test? I for am. this semester? Um, yeah. And my spring break starts today, so I have oh, a week off nice. now. So I, uh, well, congratulations. Will... You're going, you going anywhere for your spring break? I am not really. I'm going to Washington, D.C., and um, I'm actually I'm doing a little work with that pharmacogenomics company that I mentioned, okay. and so we're going to shoot some content. I'm going to D.C. for another reason, but we're going to wrap it all in, and I will be uh, spending a lot of time here at my desk doing studying and homework and catching up before well, finals. I appreciate you spending some of that time on us. Absolutely. And uh, best best wishes. I hope. Are, are you going to do an independent pharmacy rotation? I think I will. Um, I think yeah. that's part of our curriculum. And if not, I would definitely put that as like one of my preferences. We get to preferentiate kind of what we yeah. want to do. Well, when you do that, uh, reach out to us and let us know where you are. Cool. Yeah, we can definitely uh, help you. Because a good chance to be one of ours. You. We might come, uh, come, come visit you there. Awesome. So. Thank right. you for Thank kicking you. off your Friday with us and kicking off your spring break with us. Absolutely. Right. It was great to meet you both. Thank you for watching the Catalyst Pharmacy Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please like, subscribe, and follow us wherever you get your podcast. Give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts to help us reach more pharmacy professionals like you.